I'm Susan Rasky. I'm a visiting faculty member here this semester. I am on the faculty of the Journalism School at UC Berkeley. We have an extremely distinguished panel, and I hope for the sake of both the TV and for speed and moderator's prerogative um, that I can introduce them one at a time as they go ask them one nasty little question to help focus them, and then urge them to be as brief as possible, in fact, um, in their prepared remarks so that we can have time for them to scream at each other um, and you to scream at them, all right? So, um, <laughs> I want very unpolstered. <laughs> well, anytime there needs to be screaming, I'm going to leave it to you, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, I want to start, I thought I would start in the order of... Um, they're coming on the Washington scene, if you will. And to my immediate left is Will Marshall, one of the founders of the New Democratic Movement. Um, you know him as um, a part of the as president of the Progressive Policy Institute, a think tank affiliated with the Democratic Leadership Council. And so I want you to start, and I hope somewhere as we get to all the rest of you, you guys will answer the question, why do I need a scorecard to keep track of your names? Why do your names all sound like each other, which no human being can um, remember? And Will, if you don't talk about um, Mark Warner, we'll be very disappointed. <laughs> okay? Go ahead. Well, uh, thanks very much, Susan. I appreciate the chance to join some friends and colleagues on the on the panel. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the topic sentence is, so... Uh, just stop me if I start wandering off the message here for this event. Um, but I think it's about message machines and, uh, you know, the Democratic effort to catch up with what is seen to be a, a much more effective Republican message machine. And uh, I will just try to unburden myself of three quick thoughts on that. Uh, first is that uh, keep in mind, and uh, Rob and I have both done this history uh, pretty exhaustively. I know that he has, and I spent a lot of time looking at the at the efflorescence of conservative think tanks uh, after Barry Goldwater's defeat uh, on and then uh, all the other institutions that cropped up. Uh, just keep in mind that the ideas and the philosophy came first. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Fox News and uh, the Weekly Standard and the Washington Times uh, did not proceed 10 or 20 years of really hard thought and battling on the right over what their message should be. Uh, they didn't go back and say, we want a better version of Goldwaterism. They said, we want a modern conservatism, and we've got to return to first principles. We've got to raise the standard of our uh, critique of democratic programs and liberalism, the New Deal. Uh, and we have to argue among each other about what a new conservative governing philosophy is going to look like. And that's what they did. And it kind of culminated in 1980 in the, you know, with the Reagan campaign and heritage sort of uh, had its uh, uh, moment in the sun. And uh, there was something like a conservative governing agenda that was more than just a bunch of uh, reflexive reactions to New Deal liberalism. Uh, so I think it's important as Democrats scramble to catch up uh, that we that we keep in mind that the you know that the intellectual uh, spade work uh, came before any uh, of the of the building of the hollow log that people now look at and say oh it's this awesome Republican message machine. By the way, I don't think it's all that awesome. Uh, part of the reason that uh, and part of the reason I say that is because a lot of these analysis look. 
uh, in, at the political history of the last four decades and see a kind of unbroken chain of Republican successes, and they sort of conveniently forget about the 90s when uh, uh, Bill Clinton, with some help uh, from some of us, uh, learned how to beat the, the Republicans pretty persuasively at their own game by using ideas to uh, to change the image of his party, to deal with some of its liabilities, uh, and to excite people. And that's my second point. Uh, you know, do I? You know, uh, Clinton understood that uh, the Democratic Party by the mid to late 80s was the party that was intellectually bankrupt. Uh, and he knew that no amount of campaign art or better message people or better campaign ads was going to uh, persuade a skeptical public that looked at Democrats and saw a special interest party that they didn't trust to, se- uh, to, to spend their tax dollars uh, in a disciplined way, didn't trust to be for growth, thought there was a party of redistribution, a party they didn't particularly trust when it came to being tough on crime and external threats to America's security, and a party that they thought was... Uh, uh, was uh, estranged from mainstream moral values. Uh, whether we like it or not, this was the public perception, and Clinton and, and the New Dems very uh, systematically set out to uh, dispel these uh, stereotypical views of Democrats. And uh, so uh, Clinton uh, you know, used ideas again to change the, the, uh, the party's image, uh, but, you know, you can't just do this tactically. You can't just adopt ideas as a kind of talisman to, uh, to ward off uh, uh, you know, a Republican attacks. Uh, these ideas, because you might win and get elected, these ideas actually have to work in practice, not just in political theory. Uh, you know, I would submit that the, the record of the 90s was pretty damn good and looking better every day on almost every dimension, and, and so that the ideas, the reforms that he ran on, in fact, uh, were good. They were good governing uh, as well as good uh, politics. But I remember him saying to us, you know, uh, in 1990 when he took over chairmanship of the DLC and started off, and he said, you know, none of us knows uh, who is going to solve our party's problems, but first we've got to develop a new message for this party, and, and, and then the question of who will be its champion will take care of itself. Well, at the time we had some sneaking suspicion about who might be thinking about running, and it turns out that, uh, uh, that he was the guy. But uh, I do believe he was sincere in thinking that, uh, again, the intellectual rejuvenation of the party had to precede its political comeback. Um, and... Just uh, uh, one other thought about that. You know, Clinton developed some generally new perspectives, and his burden was to convince his fellow Democrats that they they were new and better ways to advance uh, traditional liberal and progressive goals. And that was a very hard thing to do, and there was a lot of broken China along the way. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, those ideas generated a lot of energy. In the 90s, uh, in 92, in that election, uh, there was a w- wide-open window, great public receptivity to hear something new. They saw both parties as brain-dead. Remember, Clinton talked about the brain-dead politics of the right and the left. They were very receptive to new ideas. It generated energy, brought him support from unsuspected quarters, allowed him to win groups in the electorate that hadn't been voting Democratic for about 20 years. Uh, And it enabled him to do something else. Uh, My friend Stan Greenberg, uh, Clinton's pollster in those days, uh, called it winning the ideas primary. Before the first uh, voters uh, were heard from in Iowa New Hampshire in 92, uh, Clinton had appeared in innumerable candidate forms with a crowded field of people. In those days, he was not seen as the first-tier candidate. You know, it was going to be Mario Cuomo or Ted Kennedy or somebody like that. But, you know, he just ran uh, circles around him because he had put in two years of hard thought about a new message, which he encapsulated opportunity, responsibility, and community, and was able to 
connect the dots pretty well. And, and it just you could tell it in the debates. He was just way ahead of the rest of the candidates. So if people think that ideas don't matter in politics, they ought to go back and look at that race. Because only in retrospect does Clinton look like the world historical genius that we now all assume he, uh, he is. You know, in those days, he looked like a second-tier candidate from an impossibly small uh, backwater state uh, who didn't have much of a chance to, to play on the national stage. Third and last point uh, is... Uh, just to look at the new labor experience in, in Britain because they learned uh, very much from uh, the Clinton new Democratic uh, renovation of the Democratic Party ideology. And Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were over here a lot, and their people. Uh, and uh, they, you know, very consciously set out to do the same thing, only they did it in the context of a much more disciplined party where you can you can take your party to one of these shabby seaside resorts in England and actually force them to change their doctrine, to get rid of you know, their socialist uh, uh, doctrine and, and adopt a kind of what Blair described as a modern social democracy. Um, and, you know, uh, the result has been, despite, you know, the, the impression is that Blair is very unpopular in his party, and that's, that's partly true, but he's also the dominant figure in British politics. He's transformed it utterly. Labor never won three... Uh, uh, straight uh, elections. Actually, never won two straight elections uh, in Britain before. And I was over there for their uh, Manchester party conference to hear Gordon Brown, who's, heirs, uh, who's uh, Blair's heir apparent, uh, pledge to continue on the modernizing and reform path. And Blair gave a great speech there in which he said, look, the battle here now is to d develop the reformist ideas, a new set of reformist ideas. The ones I took to the British public in 1997 aren't uh, doing it anymore. We need a new set of reforms that speak to a whole new set of issues facing the British public. And the great uh, battle with the Tories is to see you know, which party is going to be uh, a credible agent of reform and change. And I would submit that, that uh, the fact that the, uh, Labor is determined to hold on to that mantle is why they're in power, and Democrats sort of getting away from that is why we didn't do so well in 2000, 2004. So with that, I'll, I'll yield. All right. And next in line and in time, I guess, is John Halpin, who's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He focuses on progressive theory, strategy, and opinion analysis, and he is part of the advisory group that decides where the center is going to devote its uh, programmatic resources. And um, I want to know what was wrong with the third way, uh, that you needed to establish a new think tank whose name confuses me with other think tanks. What, what was wrong with the good old third way? Well, I don't, I don't think it starts with uh, what's wrong with the third way. I think one, one place we've started is uh, what the best way to start is what's wrong with conservative government, because that's the political context is much different now. We've now had three consecutive losses, uh, and I, I do think we have to differentiate between the future of the Democratic Party and the future of the progressive movement. They are uh, frequently sort of intertwined. Their fate is probably somewhat aligned, but they are different. I do, do think they have different yeah. goals. But after these, these three electoral losses uh, for progressives and Democrats, the, the biggest problem internally is, and from my point of view, is not a perception of being overly liberal. It's, being, it's a perception of having no core convictions at all. Uh, and, and we've written about this several times um, in terms of public polling analysis. If you look at 
the single biggest deficit the Democratic Party has with Republicans right now is on the, uh, this is from Democracy Core data, is the concept of knowing what they stand for. It's even, it's even greater than the deficit on national security. Uh, so, at, at, you know, the two are intertwined as well, uh, not, not having core beliefs and not being able to, or perceive, not perceived uh, to be, uh, not be able to take care of the country. So we start from a point where the public looks at progressives and Democrats and says, you know what, you guys once did some good things for the country, you gave us you know, some good workplace rules, got Social Security. I don't know what the hell you stand for now. And consequently, I don't see any reason why I should support you. Um, so what we focus on, it doesn't really have anything to do with whether the third way was right or wrong. Uh, you know, six years after Clinton left office, the public doesn't have any perception of the party at all. And I don't think that's the fault of of the third way or Bill Clinton or anybody. I think it's an overall uh, uh, lack, you know, lack of conviction, passion, persuasive capacity from the entire progressive movement. Uh, Will, I think, correctly mention that we're kind of seen as a hodgepodge of various interest groups. Yes, our, our public philosophy is something that's essentially a quilt of all our interest groups. That's a real problem. We agree uh, you know, similarly on that. Um, you know, most of the things that we like to stand for, we've kind of moved away from. So when the center was founded, we, we, we didn't, it wasn't in response to what was happening internally on the center left and the left of the Democratic Party. It was more, we're kind of getting worked by the right here. Can we set up some large-scale institution that can work on media, public philosophy, hard policies, do things at the executive and congressional level, do things at the state level, try and fill a huge number of gaps in the, in the infrastructure of the left um, to try and build up this idea of you know, certain core convictions, a, a concrete agenda, uh, you know, a smart, fast, reactive uh, media response capability try some new creative, innovative ways to get ideas out there. And that's how we were started. And, um, you know, I'm happy to talk more about what we've actually been doing in terms of developing that public please philosophy. Do, and, please do. I, I mean, mean, maybe the question I should have asked you is what was wrong with Brookings yeah. for the infrastructure <laughs> of the left? And partly you've Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're, the, the center is the... overtly progressive. I mean, and, and, and we're not, we don't try and, um, we're not just doing empirical analysis uh, and, and kind of seeing where it takes us. We do lots of empirical analysis, but we start with a core set of progressive values. And one thing that might be helpful to, uh, to understand, personally, I, I talk a lot about the common good, as a lot of other people have. It, my own personal philosophy, I grew up, first of all, I grew up in a conservative Republican family in Lynchburg, Virginia, home of Jerry Falwell. Uh, there were no Democrats if they were there. They were right-wing, uh, and I'd never heard the word liberal till I, till I got to Georgetown, where the Jesuits got their hands in me and Bill Clinton ran for president. Um, so uh, that's my background. And so when I come to my, my personal political philosophy that, uh, you know, I can't claim as the institutions, but, we're, you know, we, 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 I work there. So uh, it's a blend of Catholicism of the Jesuit variety with a focus on sort of service and duty to others, human dignity, decency, the liberalism of the founding, which is primarily around human freedom, democracy, rule of law, uh, you know, ideas from Jefferson and Madison, communitarian ideas, uh, de Tocqueville, um, Charles Taylor, Sandel, Etzioni, notions of family, community, civil society. And then, uh, you know, the favorite part of it, which is sort of the reformist um, element of the, of the progressive era, primarily kind of that, you know, balancing corporate power with a, with a strong national government, um, trying to balance self-interest with the needs of society that you saw in Teddy Roosevelt and others. So when I look across all four of those things that are my mix, I don't have one philosophy that's, say, libertarian like Cato or something like that. 
the one strand I see coming out of that that's consistent across all those values, which are actually quite diverse, is this notion of trying to attain or govern for the common good. And so that's what we've been trying to develop, develop that concept. Uh, we're doing a, a big conference next week, actually, with President Clinton's giving a, a, a keynote address for us at Georgetown on this. Uh, and we're trying to develop a whole policy agenda underneath that, which I'd be happy to give you in more detail, but I don't want to take up too much time. But that's, so it's not, you know, we're in response to the right. Let me just say that when we talk about the common good, what we're setting it up as is not a fight internally. We think it's actually a good umbrella concept. It's a, it's a longstanding philosophical principle. It's been around since Aristotle, if not earlier. Uh, it's in the founding documents of the country and all the great democratic presidents of the 20th century. This is something we believe in. We need to embrace it. And again, I think it can go from the center to, say, the nation left. And in fact, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback about the concept that way. The main thing is that this public philosophy uh, is, is a countervailing force against conservative philosophy, which is primarily it's very radically individualist in its orientation. So we're, we're setting this up as, you know, a, somewhat of a balance against a system now that uh, a, a philosophy that is, is telling people basically, you know, you're, you're going to rise and fall on your own. We're not going to deal with things collectively anymore. We're not going to take on big challenges. We're just going to leave it to the market. Uh, and if, if, you know, if there are big social problems that emerge, it's usually the problem of individuals. So we're setting up our public philosophy and our policy agenda not as an internal fight, but as, as an umbrella concept and philosophy to use against the right, because that's the context we're in now. Uh, even though 06 may look good, uh, you know, it's not, there's, it's not going to be a realigning election in any kind of way. There may be some shift in power, but I doubt Bush and Rove weren't able to pull off a realigning election last time around. Democrats aren't going to be able to pull it off anytime soon. So, you know, we are going to have to build a pretty strong public philosophical case with a real uh, policy agenda behind it to get people, I, I think, to stay on the side and get up so we're not, you know, we're not just stuck at that 48% ceiling nationally. All right. Thank you. Um, I, I want to apologize if, if I seem quarrelsome by, by being so glib. I, I've sort of been thinking of the three of you as brains, muscle, and money. Um, so now I'm going to introduce money. Gee, yeah. Will, I think you won that comparison. Yeah, <laughs> you have to ask my wife about the uh, muscle section. <laughs> uh, I want to introduce Rob Stein, who is a lawyer uh, who ran nonprofits in the 80s, went on to become a senior strategist uh, for Ron Brown when he was chairman of the DNC, uh, chief of staff of the uh, Washington office of the Clinton Gore. Uh, transition, uh, and then at the Commerce Department from 93 to 95. But I think most important, at least for our discussion here, somebody who studied the Republican money machine and said, we need to do something like this on our side. So um, I want to know what you learned from studying the Republican machine, what you've built, and why it's so hard to find out mm. about the... Um, and it's another name that I keep forgetting, Democracy Alliance, because all of the names are insane-making. But please, with that lovely introduction. <laughs> thank you. Um, first of all, let me thank the University of California for holding this event. Jerry, to you and Susan. And it's an honor for me to be with the other four uh, panelists in this session. And I just want to say to the panelists in the first session, uh, to Bill and to Duncan and to others, thank you. Um, you have contributed tremendously. 
to the body politic in America in the last 25, 30 years. What the conservative movement has done is precisely what was predicted and encouraged in Federalist 10, which is factions organize. And smart factions organize well. And they don't organize perfectly. And they have plenty of internal debates and divisions. And they're always fragile. Um, but it matters how well organized a faction is, a party is, a movement is in the 21st century. It might, it might matter more now uh, than it did before. Uh, you maybe could get away uh, with a little less... Um, uh, discipline and organization in um, in epics past uh, that I think is possible today. So I want to not disagree with what everybody, what the general consensus here uh, has been that ideas are critically important because uh, I obviously agree that they are. They are essential. They are necessary. I just argue that if that's all we focus on. We don't understand the driving forces of American politics. And so I would say that while ideas are essential, they are not sufficient. If the goal is to win elections and to retain and hold power, if that's the goal, then more than ideas uh, are necessary. And I want to reiterate something that the um, last panelists uh, started to get into. Um, while I also agree uh, that words really do matter and that ideas do inspire, there are good ideas and not so good ideas, local ideas and national ideas. There are big ideas and small ideas, there are economic ideas and foreign policy ideas and um, uh, domestic policy ideas and cultural and social moral ideas if you will so when we talk about ideas and sort of where they come from and how they get into the body politic we have to distinguish between types of ideas because the conservative think tanks aren't dealing with all of these kinds of ideas uh, that one of the brilliant things that the right has done over the last 30 years is they've aggregated intellectual capital all over the place. They bring, uh, they bring ideas from universities uh, in a more effective way than progressives do. They bring ideas from state, from the regions more effectively. Um, and, so, and so the ability to aggregate the intellectual capital of a movement is a more important question than what are the think tanks doing today or tomorrow. I divide the, the sort of big ideas uh, portion of the, of the uh, conservative right movement uh, sort of into three different sec um, uh, time frames. One is 1972 to 1994. Um, mandate for leadership was mentioned, uh, put on Reagan's desk. Uh, that was the culmination of, um, you know, Heritage was only seven, eight years old at that point. Uh, Cato had been founded. There were AEI existed. Um, the um, and there were you know a half a dozen, eight or ten additional new policy centers that were created in those late seventies. And Mandate for Leadership was the sort of coming out party for a new conservative idea capacity. Um, and, you know, Heritage and AEI and Manhattan and Hudson get a lot of credit for that. And Olin and Coors and Scaife and Bradley created what I think of 
uh, as a movement philanthropy. Um, they thought of, of uh, investing in institutions that were connected to the political system and that were politically relevant, not just ideas uh, for the sake of ideas. Um, and they didn't, in the 80s, don't forget, have that many big public ideas. Uh, lower taxes, obviously, uh, supply side, lower taxes. Dismantling the institutions of liberalism, getting rid of the offices of economic opportunities and the Legal Services Corporation. That was Reagan's sort of first term. Uh, welfare, welfare reform was something they had begun talking about and were, and were promoting and thinking about, but obviously they didn't get very far with it uh, in those years other than to get it into public discourse, which was a contribution. So from 72 to 94, the ability of the right to move lots of different domestic and foreign policy and, um, and economic ideas in a, in, a, in a policy and legislative sense um, was, was in its formative stage. Then 1994, of course, was a contract with America. And what is very important to remember about the contract with America is that it is the culmination it is a putting together a packaging of a tremendous amount of work that was going on in the 80s and early 90s within the conservative movement. So let me just read you, because I'm sure most of you don't remember um, uh, the, the, the categories. So they had the Fiscal Responsibility Act in the contract, number one, the Taking Back Our Streets Act, the Personal Responsibility Act, the Family Reinforcement Act, the American Dream Restoration Act, the National Security Restoration Act, the Senior Citizens Fairness Act, the Job Creation and Wage Enhancement Act, the Common Sense Legal Reform Act, and the Legal Legislative Act. This was a statement that the conservative movement had been working through their academic and their regional and their national policy centers, aggregating their intellectual capital to deal with all kinds of issues. Now, they hadn't fully formed all of these ideas, but they had fully formed a number of them. And so they were able, Newt didn't make these things up. This was the product um, of that process. Um, they couldn't, the conservative right couldn't really promote an affirmative agenda and have hopes of executing on it legislatively uh, and persuasively until 2000, when finally they controlled all three branches of the national government. Um, well, I guess it didn't in 2000 or 2002. But between 2002 and 2006, tort reform, school vouchers, no child left behind, deregulation policy, health savings accounts, social security privatization, preemption as a foreign policy. These are big ideas, and these big ideas did germinate in the national, primarily in the national think tanks, which worked together. They're sort of a mutually reinforcing strategic alliance, uh, that, and, they, and they work together on any given issue, and they do the thinking and the writing and the legislative strategy and the media strategy. So it has become, relatively speaking, a highly effective capacity to both generate and package and promote big ideas. However, the forces of change, both people and institutions, are very nuanced and complex in the 21st century. 
there are three other critical drivers of a sustained movement for political change. The first are, is civic engagement and civic engagement institutions. And for the right, it's their activist base. And it is from the activist base that another set of ideas come. They, the, the, the ideas I'm going to mention now don't really come from Heritage and AEI, but they're important ideas in the political system. Stem cells and anti-abortion and censorship and gay marriage and anti-gun control. They come from the gun lobby and they come from the, from the consortium of evangelical or religious right organizations. They come from, um, from, um, from networks of community and state-based organizations. Civic engagement, institutions promoting ideas and mobilizing people for legislative and electoral purposes is a second driver of change in this political system. A third driver is captured media dissemination. And for the right, that means religious broadcasting, which has become a very effective tool to keep the evangelical religious right communicated with, watching, listening, um, learning uh, from uh, trusted messengers, uh, Fox uh, Network, um, the talkers, of whatever it is, uh, like 10 of the 14 top talkers in the country today are conservative. So they've developed a set of very specialized media um, dissemination vehicles which reach the various constituencies of their movements. So that's the third capacity. And then the fourth capacity that is critically important is leadership development. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. Suffice it to say that the right has done a superb job of training their young leaders to be, uh, to have positions of responsibility and leadership uh, within their movement. So change is a product of purposeful, intricate interaction among movement institutions and political organizations. So political change in the last 30 years is a product both of the conservative right's relatively coherent worldview and its fresh-sounding agenda for America, as well as the center-left's partially discredited and relatively stale-sounding agenda, as well as the conservative right's strategic, disciplined, coordinated, and well-financed apparatus, movement, and political, versus the center-left's relatively non-strategic, undisciplined, disjointed, and underfinanced approach to both <laughs> movement and building politics. So whoever wins next month and whoever achieves victory at the presidential level in 2008, the operating components of the conservative rights machinery will be in place. And it is a competitive advantage. And it's a competitive advantage in three ways to promote their ideas effectively to their audiences, to oppose effectively center-left ideas and center-left leadership, and to make it difficult when center-left candidates do win, make it difficult for the center-left to govern effectively. So, words matter and ideas inspire. It's necessary, indeed essential, 
to have the capacity to generate coherent worldview and meaningful ideas. And in this particularly rarefied academic gathering of intellectuals, let's understand the value of ideas. Let's honor and commit to their pursuit, but not delude ourselves. Ideas without highly effective and targeted communications technologies and sophisticated means of dissemination will not suffice. Ideas without modern micro-targeting, voter segmentation, and voter mobilization will not suffice. Ideas without tenacious, decade-long leadership identification, training, placement, tracking, networking will not suffice. If the ultimate goal is to win elections and to attain and hold power, ideas may be the brain of the body politic, but without healthy arms and legs and hearts and lungs and musculature, the brain alone will be insufficient to build a sustainable movement. Thank you very much. You notice how he didn't answer my questions about Ask money. Me that, Ask that, me again. That's why Edsel's on the other Ask end. Ask me He's again. back clean up for me. Um, sitting, sitting next is Celinda Lake of Lake Research Partners, uh, one of the leading democratic uh, political strategists and tacticians, handling campaigns at all levels of government. And um, you probably know her of late from her battleground poll, but she and Bill McIntyre? Uh, Ed Goes. Ed Goes. I'm sorry. I get them confused. Um, <laughs> All these Republican pollsters. Uh, that's right. Um, have done to, to track national issues and sort of election barometers. And I guess yours has been going off the, off the charts uh, lately. Celinda so has a presentation on framing, and I don't want to yes, get... I feel very humble being... <laughs> everything I know from framing, you're actually going to hear from the author of framing, but um, I wanted to just... Uh, were, you, were you going to ask me a question? No, no, no. Go, not. Ahead. Good. go ahead. Go ahead. Go, go, go. Bless you. Sisterhood is powerful, guys. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, so, uh, what I wanted to share with you is, I really want to pick up on Rob's last point, which is that ideas don't matter at all without communication. And everyone up here is an expert on that. And honestly, I feel very humble. I didn't know that Jordan was going to be here. Everything I know from framing, uh, I learned. And anything I got wrong is my complete fault. Uh, but I wanted to show you and you're going to have a far more extensive conversation about it, I think, from George later. Uh, but with his permission and yours, I want to share with you a couple of points that I would make about communication. And you all can get all of these slides later, so I'm just going to go through a couple of points very quickly. Uh, first of all, if you, we look at the first chart, um, ideas are different than issues. Ideas are different than facts. And sometimes I think... Uh, we on the left particularly forget this. Uh, and uh, ideas are about narrative. They are about tapping into emotions. Uh, and uh, if, and in fact, much to all of our consternation, because I think we think if we could just sit down and really talk to someone, we can convince them. Uh, the, the most, one of the most powerful things I've learned from George and others that is that if the facts don't fit the 
frame. People don't reject the frame, they just reject the facts. Uh, so communication uh, is everything uh, in terms of having good ideas and getting them out there. The other thing that we need to remember is that the average person for the 2006 elections will spend less than 10 minutes involved in communication and thinking about them. The average 30-second soundbite is now down to about seven seconds. Uh, so uh, when we, and real people have a lot of other things on their minds. Um, activists uh, that we are, I mean, real people can't imagine a day like today coming into a room like this and being in front of this panel. Uh, and uh, the fact that we're engaged in this conversation and relish it is totally different uh, from where real people are at. Real people have figured out, though, that we as activists like this, and they think that's kind of sick, but okay. Uh, but they don't desire to be like us in any way. And in fact, uh, at, real quickly, we did a very funny uh, experiment where we asked people, um, what would you think it would be like to go to dinner with activists? And they said, well, I think it would be very interesting. I would learn a lot. They would talk very fast. I would taste a lot of food I'd never eaten before. I would like to go once. I would never like to go back again. Uh, so we're not normal, and the way we think about things is not normal. If we look at the next slide, uh, one of the most, uh, two most important things I can say about communicating is we have way too many things to communicate to people. And uh, whoever sets the frame wins elections. Whoever tells people what an election is about, and increasingly elections are fights uh, about uh, what the vote is really going to be about. And of course, this has been a, a tremendous fight uh, in the 2006 elections about whether it was going to be national or local. And I think, frankly, having lost uh, the local fight, um, most people are saying, no, I want change, uh, then I think the Republicans now are actually, and I don't think it's been talked about enough, trying to elevate it to a national conversation, but a conversation around terrorism, around taxes, around immigration. Uh, so they lost battle one, but they haven't given up on battle number two. And then repetition uh, makes uh, sets the frame. Uh, you can't make an election about 67 different things. Uh, and I think Republican campaigns are far, far more disciplined in um, saying, we're going to make this case against the person. Everything we're going to say is about this case. If new opportunities present themselves, fine. But if they don't, uh, we're not going to chase. I describe our party as we're like Greyhound bus. We keep chasing the rabbit. Uh, every rabbit that comes by as we run after. Uh, Republicans don't do that. They let a lot of rabbits go by uh, waiting uh, for things that reinforce their central message. Um, in the next slide, um, values matter. Uh, ideas are about values. They communicate values in persuasive ways. Uh, they're not about issues. They're not about a policy proposition. My favorite example of this, a really good candidate, actually, uh, who often talks in values-oriented terms, but she used to start her speeches by saying, we need to expand the Eisenhower grants. We just could not get her off that. And so we tested in a focus group, and people said, hmm, I thought Eisenhower was dead. I don't know what he needs a grant for. Uh, the Eisenhower grants are college student loans. Um, but uh, all the, the names of organizations all the policy titles, all the bill titles uh, are um, uh, not communication and uh, get completely lost. Um, the next slide I'd say is that, uh, the last one I leave, is that optimists <coughs> win. 
Uh, there's a very interesting work that was done out of the University of Michigan that goes back to the beginning of polling, 1948, and it has shown that without a single exception, the person who was rated the most optimistic on the day before the election is actually the person who won the election. Now, you can be highly critical, Bill Clinton was, and be very optimistic in people's minds. Uh, that is really true now, and it's something that I think we as progressives are frequently victim of. We're woe-is-me type people. Everything is bad, and, and everything is getting worse. And right now, people think things are bad, but they also think that they could sit down with any three of their neighbors and have a quite eloquent conversation about that. So they want to know what we're going to do about it. And that's where what John said about the lack of ideas, uh, the lack of a, an identity is really, really crippling. So uh, let me show you um, uh, a couple of things. First of all, um, people, uh, moving ahead a couple of slides, uh, thank you. Um, one of the things about uh, it, that's very important as well as values, and I don't think it's all moral values, uh, but we shouldn't underestimate the power of faith. And um, we as liberals, I think, are not very comfortable speaking about it. And I think Jim Wallace has done a lot to help us understand how to do that more persuasively. Uh, but just to remind you, 89% of voters believe in Jesus Christ. 75% believe God performs miracles. 67% believe you must accept Christ as your Savior to get into heaven. 57% uh, believe that if you don't, you'll go to hell. Um, as 67% think the U.S. is a Christian nation and think that's a compliment. And 65% of Americans say they go to church uh, every regularly. Now they're lying, but the fact that they feel that they need to lie like that is already suggestive. So this is a very religious culture and nation. And Tom has written, I think, more analytically and better on this than anyone. But uh, I think we would, on our side, often like to escape the fact that we need to find a way not just to talk about values, but to talk about faith. Uh, having said that, um, the Republicans are seen as much, much more friendly toward religion, and that's fine. Um, but the issue is, how do we characterize the other side? And if we jump ahead a couple more slides, we used to call the other side, uh, next slide, religious right. And we tested that, and people thought that was a compliment. They thought, well, religious and being correct, that sounds good. Um, then we found that the term radical right uh, was a negative. Unfortunately, post-Oklahoma City and 9-11, radical right now has a very uh, almost secular context to it. It is not a religious context. And uh, political extremist is testing okay. It's not great. But as we think about language, it's important for us to understand part of values is both characterizing yourself and characterizing your opponents. And a lot of the ways in which we characterize our opponents seem divisive, seem dated, or seem extreme in and of themselves. And often, the very way that we are characterizing our opponents makes us seem like part of the problem, not part of the solution. So frankly, uh, if George is writing another book, I hope you will write it on Guide to All of Us about how to talk about our opponents. In terms of values, which is the next slide, uh, we have some real strengths here. The number one value in the United States is not being anti-gay marriage or even being religious as strong as that is. The number one value out there is being opportun is opportunity. And I think people forget how strong the opportunity and responsibility values were in the original Clinton dialogue, thanks to work 
from Will and others. Uh, and it is important to remember values stay around for a long time. Values don't change uh, that rapidly. Politics and politicians change. Uh, but opportunity, a very, very, very strong value. And my only point here is that there are lots of values that we have uh, that can be much, much stronger than what we often articulate. One of the strongest statements that we articulated on our side is real family values means valuing families. That means having jobs that pay well enough with good health care that parents can spend some time with their children. That tested 30 points better than being against abortion and gay marriage as a value statement to the public overall. Uh, so the point is there are very, very powerful ways to articulate our issues in terms of values, in terms of faith, uh, uh, but I wouldn't say that uh, we've all learned all the tools that uh, George can teach us about. Um, if we look at some examples, and uh, let's jump ahead here a couple more slides to um, and some examples of successful values framing, and I'm sure and a couple more slides. Uh, the number one um, slide, uh, the number one lesson in framing is use values. And this is just an example. It's not meant in any way to be definitive. But we took on the ownership society, uh, which sounded pretty good to people. Uh, they like the ownership society. So we tested this message against the ownership society. And we'll turn to the next slide of mutual opportunity and responsibility. And I'm sure John can improve on this dramatically. Uh, but this was at a time when um, we were even in the polls. And we pulled up 23 points on mutual opportunity and responsibility. And if we look at the next slide, uh, not only did we win this battle, but we recharacterized what ownership society means. Uh, people said, well, hmm, now that I think about it, it sounds like you're only on your own. Uh, where mutual opportunity society sounds like the common thing, everyone pays, everyone receives. Even the simplest uh, policies uh, are more powerful when they're talked about in terms of values. One of those, if we turn two slides ahead, is minimum wage. Uh, and minimum wage, very, very popular policy with people. But far, but then why, is, why don't we have a revolution? Why don't we have every politician who voted against minimum wage defeated? And it's because until you make it about values, minimum wage is one small thing, and you may not like it, but you're not going to change a whole political system over it. When minimum wage gets framed as an example of valuing work, of um, uh, even taking people off welfare. How can you expect people uh, to work when you pay more on welfare than you do uh, if you work full time? Um, a rewarding, uh, playing by the rules and hard work. When it becomes uh, a more major issue like that, then you start to see some people uh, defeated on the issues. So the first uh, lesson in all of this is um, use some values. A second lesson is uh, personal stories. And if we look uh, two slides ahead on that, personal stories matter a lot. Personal stories can be very authentic to people. They can be very powerful in communication. One small caveat, though. Half the time people hear personal stories, they want to fix the person, not the problem. Uh, so you have to pick a personal story where people conclude there's something wrong with the system, not something wrong with the choices that that individual uh, made. And again, something that uh, George has talked about a great deal in his work. Um, sometimes uh, what we care about, frankly, just isn't what other people care about. And uh, no amount of language can uh, confuse that. And if we turn ahead, uh, health care is an example that John and I have, let's go a couple more slides ahead, uh, worked on a lot together. The problem with health care 
is real Americans are coming to the table, voting Americans, because they think health care costs too much. Uh, liberals are coming to the table because we're upset that certain people don't have access to health care. Uh, now, there are ways to link those two dialogues, but one of the reasons we don't have national health care reform in this country is because what voters want and what activists want are two very different things, and voters are smart enough to realize it. And in fact, what activists want they think, voters think, it's going to increase what they pay in taxes and increase what their health care costs. Now, that's kind of insane because the whole reason they were coming to the table was to get their costs down, not up. Uh, so there's no amount of language that can confuse that. And unless you come up with policy initiatives that seem to deal with cost as well as access, uh, then no matter how well-framed, the idea is just going to miss uh, what the public wants. Bill Clinton in 1991 and 1992 orchestrated a very effective campaign that really challenged the Democratic Party. It was designed to produce a new approach to politics and to issues uh, that uh, to, uh, he used welfare reform, he, he used uh, people who work hard and play by the rules. He had a whole lot of themes that worked very well, restoring Democratic support among basically white working class voters who had been abandoning the, par the party in droves. He came into, he won the election and he had Republicans terrified. I was covering Congress at that time, and they thought, this is a guy who really gets it. <laughs> then he just set about and he imploded, even before he took office. He imploded during the transition period. He basically caved in on every one of the fronts that he had outlined uh, in his campaign. Uh, and I say this only to say that this shows that a guy who had a winning formula was unable to sustain it, suggesting that the Democratic Party has institutional forces within it that are very strong, opposed to change, and, and in fact, opposed to winning strategies. Uh, they are much more to, uh, concerned with protecting their own interests. It's classic. Uh, the uh, economist at uh, Maryland had this theory of interest groups, and the more focused an interest group is on a single issue, often they are highly effective. And in this case, uh, Clinton got eaten alive. And the result was the election of a Republican Congress in 1994, uh, largely because of Clinton. The contract with America did not win that election for the Republicans. Bill Clinton won that election for the Republicans. Uh, and it was because he failed to live up to his own standards that he had set. And you saw a drop from 19... In that one election in 1994, the, what, the group that had been the core of the Democratic Party in the New Deal, uh, whites, white men, white women with, with just high school degrees, their support for Democratic candidates, especially among white men, dropped by 20 percentage points. That is a more than a landslide. That's that's a implosion, like a reverse volcano, and. Uh, I think there are a lot of lessons there to be learned by people who talk about the Democratic Party restoring itself. There are very serious issues that have to be dealt with uh, within the party. And the Democratic Party has not gone through this process where they were in the wilderness as the Republicans were for 
basically almost an entire ever since 1932, uh, uh, and they were so far out in the wilderness that you could have a revolution in that party in 1964, starting in 64 with Goldwater, and a total upheaval, a reversal of all their strategy, a switch from a northern party to a southern party, to an intensely conservative party, to a party that focused on whites particularly, and that uh, then later uh, acquired the uh, conservative religious community. But this was a, uh, uh, the Democratic Party has not gone through that kind of uh, difficulty, and there is still basically, especially in the interest group community, a sense that the Democratic Party is underlying it all still the majority party. And they is not, there is not a recognition that the Democratic Party is not the majority party at this time. I, let me continue with some more happy notes. For you. <laughs> I, I think, again, with all this talk, the Democratic Party, there, there are some just straightforward things that the Democrats have to have some approach to that is coherent and recognizable by the voters if, if the party is going to make any headway, no matter how well they frame their issues or whatever they do with them. They have to have some way of indicating what they as a party are going to do about globalization, job loss, and th those issues. And it can't just be reframing and saying that the Republican Party wants to have free trade and give away everything. There has to be something coherent. There's a very serious problem. In fact, all of these are very serious problems. Race is another big problem that continues to underlie a lot of the problems we were talking about, uh, the issue of health care. One of the other reasons why there is an opposition to expanding health care to the people who don't have it is the people who don't have it are disproportionately black and Hispanic and minorities. And working people, whites, don't want to see a redistribution of their income mm -hmm. downward, and they don't want to see a redistribution given away to minorities, in a way. That's how they see it. It may not be nice, and it may not be the right thing, but this is the way it is. This is why Democrats lose white working-class voters by 23, 22 percentage points. All these people, like uh, say, uh, like Tom Frank, Democrat, that these people have been suckered into voting for the Republican Party. That's just not true. These people are highly intelligent, not highly, they're very intelligent, smart, savvy, and they know that they know their self-interest and they vote their self-interest. And not to recognize that is foolish. Uh, this whole issue of values is a very dangerous terrain. The, the reality is that the Democratic Party and liberalism has won the culture war. They've won it in the culture, not in politics, but they've won it. If you look at television, if you look at corporations give out same-sex coverage, television has virtually every kind of sex available. Uh, uh, the uh, women are working, and no one is going to stop, you know, put force women back into the household. All of these things are major gains uh, that have been made, and they, they are going to stay there forever. The Re Republican Party uses these issues as a very, as a, the, the best way to mobilize candidates, can voters is to touch on what they're angry about, and there are a lot of voters who are angry about these various developments. Uh, but the Democrats have to find a new way of dealing with the reality where they are actually are, are the winners on this front. And it's not a, uh, uh, a, a, a severe threat. Even in South Dakota, we have a, a, it's a possible change. But 
Uh, and beyond that, the other problem for Democrats trying to adopt all this religious faith stuff they talk about nowadays is that Democrats, especially elite Democrats, do not believe there really is an external morality, that there's a fixed set of Ten Commandments out there or that God on high has set a set of rules. They believe basically they may be very moral people, they may believe in God, but it's a personal God and the rules are just, they're not written in stone. They are internal value choices that people make. Uh, and so they're very difficult to suddenly try to present yourself as a devout person, especially if you're talking about democratic elites. There are certainly many devout, Tom, Tim Kaine in Virginia is a devout Catholic. That's fine. But on the whole, it's going to be a rough sell to, for the party to try to go this route. Other key issues, just to go quickly through them, are that the Democrats have to have some way of addressing the financial crisis, crises in Social Security and Medicare. They have to have an approach to education that gets beyond uh, accommodating the teachers' unions. They may not, vouchers may not be a good idea. They may be a good idea. Merit pay may or may not, may not be a good idea. But they have to be willing to consider these ideas. Privatization of Social Security may or may not be a good idea. But they cannot rule out different choices just because their interest groups are opposed to them. They have to rule out and make those decisions on the merits. Otherwise, they're not going to have credibility to, to voters, and they're going to be have uh, uh, real difficulties. Um, let me conclude with just a final note of total pessimism, <laughs> uh, which is that perhaps what a lot of Democrats wish for is, is the restoration of the New Deal coalition and the, uh, the idea that there was a democratic majority that believed in an interventionist government, uh, a government that served the public good and provided for others. But it may be that that moment of liberalism was in fact a, the exception to American exceptionalism and not the rule, and that the real default position in America when we don't have a Great Depression driving that kind of thing, and we don't have Great Depressions except once, there was one massive one, uh, that in fact the real position of the United States is towards an individualism and a self-interest, pursuit of self-interest, competitiveness that uh, is different from what a lot of Democrats would like to see. On that note, let me uh, kick it back to you folks. And <laughs> let's go. All right. I'm going to thank a very distinguished panel and buy Tom's book. And we'll announce soon when he'll be back to hawk it himself. And thank you for listening. Thank you.